If you would like to support the You Are Not So Smart podcast directly and keep it alive and thriving, you can do that at patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 44, in between us, 11. This is the You Are Not So Smart Podcast. I am David McCraney, your host, and we have some really Great episodes coming up. One with John Ronson. Yes, the author of The Psychopath Test and The Men Who Stare at Goats. He has a new book all about public shaming in the age of social media. We've talked about that a lot on the show, and I'm so happy that we have John Ronson coming on to tell us about what he's discovered in a two-year investigation. And um, I love his work. I love his writing. I love his presentations. He's just the best. So that's going to be a great episode. We'll also have an episode with Tally Chereau, the psychologist who studies and wrote a book about the optimism bias. Also, Jia Jiang, who spent 100 days getting rejected in more and more insane situations to try and rid himself of the fear of rejection and see if it gave him superpowers. He has a blog and a book coming out that is based on all of that. So lots and lots of great stuff on the way. This, however, is not a new episode. I'm working on two things right now. A lecture I'm giving at South by Southwest in a few weeks. So if you're going to that, uh, find me and let's hang out. Um, and I'm also working on this huge project. I've just, I've spent about a month on this, um, doing nothing but interviews, uh, every couple of days. And I'm trying to put together two very special episodes of this podcast. And it's requiring me to do a lot of travel to gather these interviews because I want them to all be in person if I can do it. Because of all of that, this episode is a rebroadcast of two interviews I did for episode 20, which was all about how we are very, very bad at predicting the future, both in our personal lives and as a species. So the first interview you will hear in this episode is with Matt Novak, who writes for Paleo Future, a blog at Gizmodo that explores how people from the past imagined very incorrectly, uh, and sometimes correctly, what the future might be like in decades to come. And the second interview is with James Burke, one of my idols, a science communicator who stands shoulder to shoulder with Carl Sagan and David Attenborough. It is definitely my favorite interview that we've ever done. And uh, that'll be the second interview. But first, what you're about to hear is an answer that Matt Novak gave me when I asked him to tell me what he thought about the myth of the great man. Yeah, history is uh, written by those, those that are often uh, uh, seen as innovators. But I think that there's... We fall into this trap of looking at history as a series of great men. It's um, you know known as the great man myth. Uh, people, for whatever reason or another, uh, like to look at um, various figures throughout history, and that's often has to do with uh, the history of invention, uh, and and look at them as uh, the 
only motivators that that drive history. Um, for instance, you know, when people fixate on this sort of uh, Nikola Tesla and and Thomas Edison story, um, the fact that it's framed in such a way uh, as as you're probably aware, um, recently, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, thanks to um, a webcomic called The Oatmeal, uh, Nikola Tesla became incredibly popular recently, rightly so, because of, of some of his innovations. But um, a, a, a sort of byproduct of that, an unfortunate byproduct, is that people still look at um, turn of the 20th century inventions as uh, through the lens of, a, of the great creator myth. Um, you know, when, when we look at, you know, a lot, it's really fashionable right now for people to say that, you know, Tesla, uh, doesn't get enough credit and, and, uh, he actually invented everything. Um, you know, he invented all of these things that we take for granted today, which he had, you know, contributed to in, indeed. Um, but he wasn't a lone inventor. There were a lot of other people working on a lot of similar things. Uh, and he was not inventing in a vacuum. You know, we, we have this popular notion of, of, uh, you know, how an iPhone gets made, you know, Steve Jobs, uh, goes into a garage and comes out with a fully formed iPhone, uh, when obviously invention is much more complicated than that. And, and many, many people much smarter than I have written about this, uh, you know, the, the, all the various myths of how things actually get made in the world. And I think it's dangerous. Quite frankly, I think that it's, it's, it contributes to a society where we rely on believing that, um, that a lone person is responsible for, uh, how the world may operate. I think that you see this reflected in things like intellectual property. Um, the way that we understand it, um, or the way that, that the founding fathers understood it was as a limited monopoly granted by the government, uh, where you would have for 14 years, um, with the possibility of, of re-upping another 14 years. So a maximum of 28 years, uh, on your, uh, your copyrighted works. Um, I think that, we've evolved ever so, uh, dangerously throughout the 20th century into believing that, um, because of these, uh, the way that we look at these great inventors, that everyone should just own whatever this quote unquote intellectual property is forever. Um, you know, and that there, there it's, I think a dangerous idea because as, as, I don't care how smart you are or how innovative you are. You didn't do everything, all these things in a vacuum. You didn't create anything in a vacuum. You were uh, influenced by any number of things. You got your education through any number of ways. Uh, and you no doubt owe many, many people for what you produced. Um, so part of that sort of agreement that we should have as a society, in my rather humble opinion, is that you know, you should have a limited period where you get to um, profit and benefit from your work, uh, but it also shouldn't be absolute. It should, there should, you know, we need to acknowledge things like fair use. We need to acknowledge that there needs to be a term limit on these these protections, these government-granted monopolies, so that 
um, people continue to build on them, to continue to innovate. Up next, my interview with James Burke from episode 20. But first, these words from our sponsor. We cannot get enough of learning about how our minds work, how and why we think the way we do. And we've been watching the Great Courses series, Your Deceptive Mind, a scientific guide to critical thinking taught by Dr. Stephen Novella, professor of neurology at Yale, who was a guest on this podcast in an episode in which he talked about conspiracy theories and why people fall for them and why they create them. And he is the host of another podcast you've probably heard of called The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And he has taught this course, a full course in critical thinking called Your Deceptive Mind, which is a fascinating look at metacognition and how our brains work to process information and misinformation. He also provides powerful practical tools to become a stronger critical thinker in both our personal and professional lives. And not only will you learn about biases and fallacies, but you will learn about the neuroscience of belief and pattern recognition, what, what it is that causes mass delusions, pseudoscience, probability, and how to construct an argument that avoids logical fallacy. So if you're a fan of this podcast, this is the lecture to get from The Great Courses. And like all the lectures offered at The Great Courses, you can enjoy it with online downloads, streaming via their apps, or on DVDs or CDs. And for a limited time, The Great Courses has a special offer for You Are Not So Smart listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling courses, including this one, Your Deceptive Mind, and get up to 80% off the original price. 80, 80. But this offer is only available for a limited time, so you have to hurry. To order behavioral economics with my special offer from The Great Courses, you must go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's thegreatcourses.com slash smart. James Burke began his career as a university professor and a lecturer, and he went on to become a reporter for the BBC where he covered live the first moon landing and he covered the lives of the astronauts and their adventures before and after. And he created, wrote, and hosted the program's Connections and The Day the Universe Changed. If you haven't seen Connections, whether the first series or some of the other series that came later, you have to see these things. Find them somewhere. I don't care how you do it. You have to watch the programs. They're fantastic. They're amazing. And all of those together are the main influence for anything that you watch on television today that has anything to do with real science and real history. Even the things that you see on YouTube, all of these things were greatly influenced by the style and presentation and wit of James Burke. And using his connection style view of looking at the world, he would never say that he was a legend. He'd say that anyone could have done what he did given the same tools. But um, I'm saying that he's a legend, and he's not lucky to have been the first he is an incredible science communicator. And, uh, of course, like I said earlier, he goes shoulder to shoulder with people like Carl Sagan and David Attenborough. And you're about to hear an interview with him that I just think is the greatest interview. I'm so happy this happened. Um, one quick note. There are moments in the interview in which Burke taps the table as he makes certain points in the microphone and pick that stuff up. So please forgive those bumps. All right. Here's my interview from episode 20 with legendary science historian and communicator, James Burke. We were talking earlier about how 
connections is is something that everyone comes up to you and talks about how it really changed their lives and did everything. But it was also and how it's like uh, it's led people to different career paths and shown them how the world's different. But what's neat about that is how we all have at a certain age, everyone has seen connections, and as you get younger and younger, the pop culture that you use to talk about gets more and more fragmented. Mm. So I'd imagine, like back, historic, you know, <clears throat> further back in time, everyone would just talk about Shakespeare, mm. or Milton, or whatever. Mm. Now we all talk about Sesame Street mm -hmm. connections and stuff. And mm -hmm. so, what do you, how do you see that altering people socially? That that as the world that we all are familiar with it gets more and more fragmented that we don't all have that same foundation to begin a conversation with a stranger. I'm a bit concerned in the short term about the fact that this fragmentation you speak of will move people further and further away from what used to be a common culture, a, thing, a limited form of expressing ourselves as a society with, into which everybody subscribed. I mean, the further back you go in history, the simpler that subscription becomes, you know. And way, way back it is, do what the shaman tells you and what the paintings on the side of the wall of the cave tell you to do. And, uh, you know, in the 18th century or the 17th century in Britain, you know, it's, it's uh, be a Catholic or a Protestant or whatever. Um, th there's been an explosion in the last 40, 50 years in the fragmentation that you speak of um, in the sense of tools becoming rapidly more and more available with which individuals can indulge themselves. I was going to say communicate, but I don't mean that. Um, individuals, I think, are beginning because of this new technology to recognize that it doesn't matter anymore if they don't conform to the five rules that society requires of them, you know, like be brilliant, go to a good school, get a good university, blah, blah, blah. But that with the new technology, you can express yourself as well as anybody else. And therefore, in a sense, you no longer feel that those old-fashioned virtues have any value anymore. And it seems to me that, you know, the more, the more people begin to see themselves as kind of autonomous, culturally autonomous, the less value they'll place on the common cultural uh, infrastructure that we used to live by. And the problem there is that this co the common cultural infrastructure is what held us together and kept us safe. Um, in, the, in the crudest possible sense of the word, before a, a society with police, you walk down the street, you'll get killed. Mm -hmm. After a society without police, the same thing occurs. So are we heading for that? Are we heading for even more dangerous streets? That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a problem which will be solved I mean, in one of two ways. One is the technology itself becomes it more becomes, makes it more possible for society to be even more regulated than before, never mind what people do in the privacy of their own homes, which will become even less regulated. I mean, you know, we're already not shocked by knowing that 11-year-olds see and send each other pornographic uh, material. Once upon a time, you would be burned at the stake for even saying such a thing. Um, so what's happening inside, in the privacy of people's own homes and so on, is, is becoming more and more and more cut off from what the raw infrastructural rules of how society functions, like the police and driving a speed limit and not getting drunk when you get in a car, and getting an education that, it, that gives you a degree that is recognized by various people around the world. With the internet, 
this fragmentation, it seems to me, dangerously moves everyone, creates this massive dichotomy between what you do in the privacy of your own home, which of course is no longer your own home because you're talking to people around the world, anywhere, anybody you like, anywhere you like, and what happens in the street outside where the police still patrol and the, and the laws still obtain. I'm concerned that, that we are not... If I have a single major concern, it is that our educational systems are absolutely refusing to recognise the need to move as fast as possible to deal with this problem, because the problem of people getting total freedom without a sense of responsibility comes from the fact that they haven't been educated to realise that they, do, they ought to have a sense of responsibility. Not that they have to behave in certain ways, but they, if they want to do, they do. They do what they do, that's up to them, but they do it aware that the community exists around them and that they have to fit into that community. Or when they go out on the street, they'll get a terrible shock because the police will, you know, they'll stop being totally self-indulgent, whatever they like, with their friends in Ouagadougou, mm -hmm. and they walk onto the streets of whatever it is, and they'll... So, it seems to me the answer lies in this intransigence on the part of the educational system mm -hmm. to, to use the technology to become entirely different. To, to, our educational system goes all the way back to Mesopotamia. I mean, to the scribes in, in under Hammurabi, you know, two, three, whatever, thousand years mm -hmm. before Christ. It hasn't really essentially changed. And it, it's, it's crude, limited, uh, draconian, top-down, authoritative. Um, if you're not a round peg, you don't fit in the round hole. And, and if that's the case, then you're a failure. Mm -hmm. um, and that's true in, in other aspects of our culture as well. Absolutely, absolutely. We have these extraordinarily limiting constraints from a past in which we did not have the tools to have anything other than extraordinary limiting constraints. But now we do have the tools, and the tools are running away with us faster than the social institutions can keep up. <clears throat> it seems to me that we urgently set up... Well, I've been toying with an idea, which I don't know whether it go down very well or not, but I mean, I think that, that a country, any country, but let's say America, America or Britain, I think countries ought to set up departments of the future. We now have big data and, and nanotechnological promises of computing capabilities that make what we can do now look like, like you know, hacking something in stone mm -hmm. in terms of the capabilities. We are on the edge of having the technology to be able to say, let us run a constant, dynamic, updated review of everything that science and technology is thinking about in terms of what may or may not be the kind of innovation coming down the road. And then let us use the same techniques to ask the public in general, not politicians, whether they like that idea, whether they feel that they could live with that idea, and then, like a Delphi technique, rerun it until everybody stops changing their mind when they hear a bit more, a bit more, a bit more. You know, the old right. Delphi technique right. is you go on telling them and they say, oh, shit, then I better... Well, once they've stopped changing their mind, that tends to mean that the community has arrived at a decision with which it can live. So there are techniques that allow you to do that and, and, and use this, these techniques. We almost have the technology already to set up a department of the future run by, for the moment anyway, a government, mm -hmm. um, which lets, let's pretend at a very simple level, you had, you had centers all around the country, each one of which uh, looked at the work of major research laboratories, both private and public, both university and, and, and commercial, without, uh, without breaching 
commercial secrecy, to say these are areas that look promising. Collate all those all together and process them using stuff like big data to see what the pattern looks like becoming. And then layering on top of that social media analytics to say, if this was coming, would you like it? And if not, why not? In other words, to have a sort of 24-hour-a-day referendum mm -hmm. on... A conversation. Of, of, yes, right. on what the future is going to be. And then make it happen. Mm -hmm. Because after that, I mean, if, if we were able to say to a corporation that was about to produce DDT, well, in fact, most people don't think it's a great idea and they won't buy it, a company's going to say, fine, shareholders don't want to create something that will not be bought, and they won't make it. Now, you, people say, well, that's draconian, and it's uh, whatever, you know. Yes and no. The market always decides what it wants. Mm -hmm. If people don't buy it, forget it. doesn't matter how brilliant you think the idea is. If nobody buys it, forget it. Right. So it's always been going on. You know, it used to be the king, now it's the market mm -hmm. that says you can or can't do something. All I'm saying is this might move things to the stage where it's the populace in general that say you can or can't do something. And after all, vox populi, vox dei, either the voice of the people is the voice of God or it isn't. And if it, I mean, if it isn't, why have we got the so-called democracy crap going? Right. So. And you, you, um, you, you mentioned earlier, we were talking about, uh, and you, you said this a couple of times today, that democracy in and of itself has some, um, as we move forward and as things are changing for us culturally and technologically, that there are many elements of democracy that aren't, uh, that seem almost subject to um, being either done away with or altered drastically. And there seems to be no move to do that. Like you were talking very much about the binary system of, of uh, Republican, Democrat, yeah. liberal, conservative. Could you sort of uh, elaborate on, on your on your views on that? Well, I mean, you know, the 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 two and three party system which most Western countries have hasn't really changed since the eighteenth century. Um, in spite of the fact that the rest of the world has changed. I mean, the rest of the society around it has changed. I mean, you know, it used to be that a representative democracy is you have somebody to stand up there and think about the things that you would think about if you had the time, but you haven't got the time. So you know, somebody said in our discussion, I don't want to make up my mind. I want somebody else to do it for me. That, that kind of thinking comes from not having the tools that make it easy. Very quickly, in, your own, in privacy of your own home and in privacy and when you have a moment, to be told the data that, that that politician is being told. These are the these are the facts. Make up your mind, decide, and then punch a button and put it in. Put your information, put your your view into the machine. Um, representative democracy is neither representative nor democratic. It's not democratic because it doesn't represent every single view. Because every single view is boiled down to one of two views. It's not representative because it doesn't represent... Uh, my, my, my representative doesn't know me. How can he represent me? He can represent me as a number when I go to the ballot box, if I go to the ballot box. And increasingly, people don't. Um, and it's like the educational system. We have these institutions that are like, like tankers. You know, they, they take one hell of an effort to change them, change the course. And we need to change very fast. It's, it's, it, it's, um, the dangers of anarchy are too great. Um, the, the fragmenting that you were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. 
the dangers inherent in a, a dichotomy between what society pretends it is, which is political structures and institutions and so on, doing their daily work, and here come the police, blah, 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 and people in the privacy of their own homes talking to Wagadougou or anywhere else, mm -hmm. and living this crazy, insane parallel universe, which right. is what it'll become. And that's true in, in my hometown, is that I think many of the people who are my age, we feel like we live in a, a world that's online, and we communicate online, and we interact with media that has nothing to do with our local uh, government. Yeah. And there are older people who interact with the local government, but we li I live there in body, but not in mind. Absolutely. And we have, I mean, we have the same kind of problem right now, for example. You know, there are massive floods in London, and it's becoming clear that the, uh, that the political elite who live in London have no idea what the real world is about, because they're too busy debating points of order. I mean, look, don't get me wrong, points of order are very important. <laughs> but there are moments when, it, when, you know, when there is a dysfunction there, because the system is not flexible and fast enough and doesn't, like, like the example you talk about, where there are two universes going on. And, and the real universe where people, you know, get flooded and suffer and whatever, whatever. I, well, I mean, I can do no more than to say what I said before. I think that we are rapidly moving towards a separation of the, of, of the two. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, all these lunatics in the privacy of their own house are going to come out one day. <laughs> right. And then God save us all. <laughs> right. has, there been, was there, has there been a similar uh, cultural shift in history to, to one like, like this or likened to it in, in any way? Print, I suppose. Print. Mm, print. And, and, you know, the, I think the Bishop of, I forget, the Bishop of St. Albans said, printing will make reading the infatuation of people who have no business reading. And what he meant was, don't let those guys get these books, because mm -hmm. if, if, you know, if they do, it's the end. And sure as hell it was, it called Protestantism. I mean, Protestantism happened not because Luther stuck up some things on a handwritten thing on a church door, but because his stuff was printed and right. sent around Europe, yeah. like, within weeks. <laughs> and the entire world fell apart, mm -hmm. you know. It's that powerful. And when these loonies in their private private houses come out onto the streets with these ideas, I mean, they're not... I don't know what's going to happen, but something's going to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. I, uh, Clay Shirky, though, has written about how, like, he, and I'm sure he got it from many different sources, but mm -hmm. the, the printing, you know, the world before the printing press and after the printing press are so different. Absolutely. Because the book was something that... Um, it was passed down yes, through, yes. through generations, yes. and it was mainly, yes. Yes. mainly yes. It was a Bible in Latin, yeah. yep. and then all of a sudden now you have pornography, and you have books about uh, the circulatory system. Yeah, but you have, the amazing thing is, it seems to me, the two kind of, two big things. A, old people stop having authority, hmm. because it doesn't depend on how old a guy is and how much he remembers, you, re you can read in a book. So young people get authority. The world turned upside down. And the second thing is, you can't tax people. You, suddenly, you can tax people because oh, yeah, okay. you print and stick it on the on the on the on the village green. This is your tax, and you will pay it on this day. Mm -hmm. And it goes all over the country instantly, and all over the country instantly. Everybody knows they have to pay. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way that you run society in a totally different way with print than you do before. <clears throat> and it, re it requires. And Clive Thompson uh, uh, has has written about this. He says, that, you know, well, in after the printing press, you need a new civics, and then people have to be educated in that new <clears throat> civics. Yeah. And so now with the internet and the web making it possible for a person to, it doesn't matter where you live geographically, you can have your message heard, it's yes. more, there's a meritocracy, yes. all these other things, yep. that that requires a new civics. Well, this so, is what I was saying earlier yeah, right. about, about education. Need to, Absolutely. 
people will have to learn that at some point. So we're kind of in that weird transition. Yeah, I know, but place. the trouble is, you see, where the hell are they going to learn it? I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, they could learn it on the internet because you can learn everything on the internet. But but will they know how? Yeah. Because as I was saying earlier, learning to learn is the most important thing about learning. Learning to know how to find out stuff. And, you know, it, it's not, not necessarily true with our educational background mm -hmm. that we will go to this new internet and say, hooray, I know what to learn. Because you we can don't. find, you can find someone to support whatever you already Exactly, believe, exactly. Right? We have learned, n nobody's taught us critical facilities, we need to have critical faculties, we need to do this. And that's why I go back again to the educational system, which is mired in the 17th, no, 12th century. It, it, and we had this, when I talked to him about this, we came to a similar point, which is where you, it's almost as if you have to roll everything back to teach logic and critical thinking yes. and start there yeah. and then people can be let loose. Yes, them. yes. I mean, the very important point you just made because it, it's no longer important to teach people to be chemists or physicists or anything because those jobs are gone uh -huh. and if they're not gone today, they're gone tomorrow. And and unless we know the, 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 the old tools of critical thinking and logic, so we will not be able to handle what follows. Mm -hmm. So we're wasting our time training people to be things that will no longer exist in 10, 15, 20 years' time. Um, the so-called specialties, mm -hmm. specialization uh, domain. Right. Um, I wanted to take a chance, uh, take an uh, opportunity to talk about you. You are working on maybe a new book, maybe a new project, mm. and, and you've spoken about it, and uh, if you don't feel like repeating, don't, <laughs> don't mind repeating yourself a little bit um, for the recording. Um, tell me a little bit about what you see when it comes to scarcity and abundance, and what you're, how you're thinking about that right now. Well, I'm, I don't know what I'm thinking about it right now because I'm, you know, I don't know about you, but I, when I'm doing a book, I tend to say, I know what this book is about. Then I do a lot of research and I think, I don't know what this <laughs> exactly. book is about. Then I do, I, I sort of, I review. And I think, no, no, it's about this. And then I think, no, wait a minute, I've dumped some stuff and I really shouldn't have dumped it. And it goes on being like that. It's like trying to catch fish with a, with a net and you've got the net in the right or the wrong place. So at the moment, I have this big pile of stuff, some of which I went off in another direction or whatever. You know what it's like. Exactly. It's chaos. So what I have to say about it is, is um, I'm, I'm unformed. Okay. Um, otherwise, I'd have written the book. <laughs> right. Uh, but generally speaking, I'm interested in looking at the ways in which our present culture has been shaped by millennia of experience with living with the need to manage the problem of, of scarcity. In some form or other, somewhere, at some point in time, there was always not enough of something enough for it to be critical and enough for somebody to have to do something about it pharaoh church government individual whatever and that and that during the, during the course of history these different moments of crisis have occurred and triggered the establishment of some kind of social infrastructure institution way of doing things set of values set of behaviors that would handle this particular aspect of shortfall that, that was worrying the society at the time and these, this accretion of these behavior sets and institutions and ways of doing things and ways of thinking and values to aim for, which all were set up at different times throughout history in, in regard, in response to different specific problems regarding scarcity, have all fed into what we are now. Mm -hmm. And what we are now is probably terrifically good at dealing with scarcity, ex unless you're an African these days or one or two other people, because well, that's a different matter. Um, so what we have done is taught ourselves over history to be extremely proficient in dealing with the problem of scarcity. We've not dealt with it totally because we have scarcity, and there always has been scarcity. But we've, we've mitigated the worst effects because our society hasn't fallen apart. 
So that is proof that we have mitigated the worst effects because enough of us have survived. Uh, the, the, the nanofabricator making anything you wish from the molecular level up, atomic level up really, with, with raw material consisting mainly of dirt, air and water mm -hmm. and, a, and a lot of carbon which you get from acetylene gas. And of course the minute you have a faber you make your own acetylene gas, so you just need the, the first bottle. Like the home, a home fabrication yeah, device. Yeah, home fabrication okay. device. Like a, like a, they call them, you know, well, they're calling them 3D printers, right? I know, but 3D printers a different thing. Okay. Because okay. yeah, the 3D printer uses material and shapes it. Okay. But you have to put the material in. Okay. This thing works at the atomic level, okay. and well, there's no such thing as, I mean, you make the molecule you want in order to put the molecules together to make stuff. Once you've got the stuff, then you shape it. Mm -hmm. Like a Star Trek replicator. Kind of exactly. Okay. Exactly. You say, I want a cup of coffee, you get a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. I want a Mona Lisa, I want a bar of gold, and whatever. Um, and and the, 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 the general opinion is about 40 to 50 years from now, mm -hmm. um, working to produce anything you want. And not costing anything, because the first thing a fabricator does, as I said in my talk, is make itself, make a copy of itself. So the general thinking is a fabricator for everybody on the planet within two years of the first one. Because the first one makes another one, so it goes one, two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty. I mean, it takes no time at all. Right. And you send out the information for, for, for structuring the thing by, by, by Wi-Fi or, or some online means. And of course, to build the thing is easy because the raw material is everywhere. Right. Huh? Dirt, air, and water. Okay. So it's going to happen awfully fast, and it's going to happen much faster than we can deal with because we're still looking backwards dealing with the business handling software, uh, handling scarcity. Mm -hmm. So the book says, is there anything we've learned from handling scarcity that will help us to handle abundance? And at the moment I think the answer is no, mm -hmm. nothing at all. It will probably like a, a complete reboot of A everything. complete reboot, exactly. Every single value structure is meaningless, including so-called truth. And all those, all these other fancy words, people were chucking around. Right. I mean, everything is meaningless. The 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 uh, so-called free market, capitalist, whatever you want to call it, society, commercial society, will be destroyed at a stroke. Mm -hmm. The trouble is the transition period. Right. And that's what I think I want to concentrate on most. How do we get from here to there? There, utopia, blah blah. Anybody can write stuff about that. The hard stuff, and I haven't really tackled the problem seriously yet is to deal with how we get from here to there. Right. The vested interests mm -hmm. are great. I mean, they're going to have, we're going to have to shoot every one of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> nobody, nobody is going to give way to this. No, of course not. Because it's everything. Uh -huh. It's everything. And there's so many cultural values that will have to Everything. Change. All cultural values relate to scarcity, mm -hmm. ultimately. And when there are no cultural values, what do you have? Do you need any if you live entirely autonomously on a mountain in Antarctica? What, what do you need for cultural values? Right. Huh? And if you interact with 3D holograms, everybody else, you know, there are all kinds of cultural problems to be solved before we even do that, you know. I mean, you, you can see the kind of micro, microcosm of the problem when today, as I said earlier, 11-year-olds are swapping pornographic views of themselves. Mm -hmm. 23 years ago, we would have been horrified to even think of saying those words in a conversation. Now, it's happening. So, all of a sudden, we have these little kids doing things that are un... Un unthinkable mm -hmm. and they're doing them and there's nothing we can do to stop them mm -hmm. so what is happening to them and as a result what will their life be like and when they interact with the community what will the community be like so they're already I want to say poisoning the world because I'm an old fogey <laughs> right. somebody in the future would say bringing the truth or whatever right. 
or they're just just different. Just or just different. doing it, yes. yes. Because the thing about it, it seems to me about abundance is just doing it. There'll be no can I, may I, should I do anything. As long as it doesn't, what will there be a rule that says don't, what do they say in, in medicine? No, do no harm. Do no harm. Right. First of all, do no harm. It, will that be the only rule? Do no harm. Will we be, will human beings be noble enough to meet a world of that kind of abundance? Well, you could have asked that in the Middle Ages and said, no, we'll never stop chopping people up and pulling their vitals out while they're, you know, string them up and then hang, draw and quarter them. I mean, if you'd said to people pulling the guts out of some poor bastard who'd been hung long enough to be nearly dead, but were alive enough to know his guts were being pulled out, then you chop his head off. People say, never happen. You know? So yes, people can get noble enough to do better things. We did. Yeah. We don't do that anymore. I think I've read that um, in the Middle Ages, the chances of dying by the hands of another human being were like 25% uh, in your lifetime uh, or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. And now that's down to um, like, almost, like around one. Yes, 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 yes. Um, Okay, so food used to be very scarce, and then people would have the banquets to show off how much money they had, or that they were able to hunt or whatever. Lunch, yeah. Right? And then, in modern society, food is so insanely abundant that now the task becomes, can you stay your hand and not eat the food? Mm -hmm. So now the, the cultural, um, what's valued culturally is a person who is able to not eat too much and remain healthy, and they can show that off to people. Um, and uh, it seems as I think that that transitional period you're talking about is going. You're going to see a lot of uh, moments where all of a sudden we have this abundance, and we don't know. Like, you know, if if I can make a diamond by just pressing a button, mm. that, that means mm. that diamonds have mm. absolutely no, no. Uh, culturally sure. ascribed yep. value ever again. Yep. That all these things that we're used to having value ascribed to them because of abundance will now have zero value. Yes. Yes. And we'll have to come up with a completely new value system for what we appreciate other human beings. Yeah. Why do we have to have a system, you see, at all? I mean, sorry, okay. I don't mean to no, be rude no, no, to you, no, but, but is a value system an old-fashioned think? Oh, that's a great you idea. See? Oh, yeah. I mean, a value system means let's all share something. Well, the, the thing, one of the big problems about abundance, it seems to me, is we won't be sharing anything. I mean, why? why? We only share things now because we have to. Mm. Uh, we only share that, you know, it's bad to hit somebody, it's bad to steal, it's, it's good to be good looking, it's good to um, have a good education. These things may not matter at all uh, in the sense that n nothing communal may matter. If you are entirely autonomous, what, 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 what value system do you want except your own? Mm. It's like so strangely like solipsistic, like you, are, you, you can be a universe unto yourself and what does that mean? Or you can have a small group of people that are so self-sufficient that they well, don't have to interact. So yeah, well. but the trouble there is, you see, I mean, you know, with 3D holograms and the kind of computing capabilities that might be possible, you can create that universe for yourself. Mm -hmm. So you can have all these friends and all these people and all these interactions and live like people are doing in your town now in their homes, in their lunatic world. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you, you create your own world, you create your own, you know, your own, your own cyber universe and live in it. What difference is that? What's the difference between that and living in, except you don't go out and get wet? Right. I don't know. Uh, well, it's, it's a problem we have to think about, because yeah. in transition, we've got to get there. Yeah. Um, I'm a little bit uh, comforted by the fact that most people can't, have never been able to predict the future very well. So, <laughs> so whether it's good or bad, uh, you know. Yeah, but, but I think the trouble about, about nanotechnology is that it could be very, very good or horrendously bad. <laughs> And I think we have to think about which one we want, mm -hmm. because I don't think people want it to be horrendously right. bad. I mean, one of the one of the things in nanotechnology, 
seems to make possible is for you to build your own nuclear device easily, very easily. You know, what is a world where anyone can build a nuclear bomb? Exactly, device? exactly. I mean, nuclear bomb in every backyard. What? I mean, so, I don't trust my uncle with a gun. I don't do, yeah, so do we have to have, will there have to be some kind of cultural behavior? That is to say, there will be a, I don't know what it would be, some kind of software police that says there are certain things hmm. the machine will not do. Now, of course, what you might be able to do is to program, and then companies, then I come back on myself and say the hacker will do something. That's the problem. Because you could easily, you know, make sure that the that the network of embedded, trillions of embedded dust mode-sized computers in, in the, on the planet running the place, you know, like, like Asimov's third law, was mm -hmm. it, you know, um, won't do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, until the first hacker says, well, I know how to do it, mm -hmm. and then he does it. can't stop the hacker. Yeah, there's a nuclear explosion in Iowa, and everybody says, Christ, how did that happen? You know, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. These are the problems we've got to think about. Yeah. All I'm saying is, help, help, the ship is sinking, guys. Right. <laughs> you know. um, I don't want to keep you any longer. I asked no, you I one, go. one, one last right. uh, sure. thing, and that was that uh, <laughs> I love that you, uh, many people that uh, have come up to you and say, uh, how do you make all these connections? How did you do this? <laughs> how, you're a, you seem to be this fantastical mind who can do all these things, <laughs> and you always counter it with that anyone could do this. Yes. You just happen to be the yeah. first person on TV to do Well, it. yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I just happened to do it when the BBC was offering money to go and do a series of programs about it, and I did it, and then I became famous, and so everybody says, you did it first. There may be hundreds of people, thousands of people who did it before me. I'm, I would be surprised if they weren't, and that's how the brain works. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody's got one of these things, and they all work like connections. And they all, and you, you make this point that... Um, we're all on equal footing, it's all about opportunity. Yes, well, more than that. I mean, we're on an equal footing and it's, and it's all about opportunity as long as we all have the same tools. Mm -hmm. And with an educational system up until now, we do not have the same tools. Uh, this is the great hope I have for, 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 for the internet and for nanotechnology, that it will give everybody the same tools. But we sure as hell don't have the same tools if you look at the schools in, in Oxford as opposed to Hoboken. Mm -hmm you know, or anywhere else you choose, mm -hmm. we do not have the same tools. Mm -hmm. Well, when we get all the same tools, then, then we'll see. Okay. Come yeah. the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you no, so, pleasure, pleasure. so pleasure. much. A great pleasure. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. If you want to find more great podcasts like this one, go to boingboing.net and go to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all the previous episodes of this podcast. Send your cookie recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com and if I bake your cookies, I will send you a signed copy of my book, You Are Not So Smart. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. And on Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog. And I'm at David McRaney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. Other music in this episode was provided by Drew Garraway, The Tradsters, and Banjo Apocalypse. Support You Are Not So Smart by going to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. <laughs>